our last chance to sing uh, the old, the OT Hokie. Um, so if you haven't learned it by now, then may, this might be the morning that it catches. It might be the Lord's Christmas gift to you. It's just suddenly you have memory to sing the OT Hokie. All right, ready? One, two, three, four. Creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silent names. Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David, Daniel, Ezra, Pharisees. Some of you, you know, it's like the person who doesn't know the words to the song, but you try to say the word like right after to make it look like you know the words. Yeah. yeah that's called dishonesty. Uh, <laughs> but A for effort. Glad you're here. Okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. Lord, we are so blessed to have your word. And uh, in your word, we have great and precious promises. And we pray that as we look at some of those promises, that it would stabilize our hearts in this world as we walk through the trappings of a world that's subjected to futility, that is still fallen, that is as yet not finally redeemed and restored, but Lord, we look forward to the day when your creation will be rejuvenated and restored, and there will be no death and no pain and no tears, and your people will be home with you. So we pray that you would strengthen that impulse in our hearts as we look at your word this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for the series here on the Old Testament. This brings us to our last installment of our study in the Old Testament as we transition from the period of exile to the period of the return. A quick connection from last week, we talked about how the prophets were active prior to the exile. God turned up the volume of his word through the prophets and they started warning of impending exile, the judgment of God, the discipline of God on his people. The people went into exile. God kept his promise that he was going to discipline his people. But even there in exile, the prophets were very active speaking to his people in exile. And then there are post-exilic prophets who are prophesying after the, the period of the return has begun. So God is going on record with his people and when you read through the prophetic books of the Old Testament, they are a bit of a downer, aren't they? I mean, a lot of the chapters are about judgment and discipline and the idolatry of the people, the idolatry of the nations around them. Uh, there's a lot of that. But if we read these prophetic books thinking it's all judgment, we've misread the, pro the prophets. Because each prophetic book has hope in it. Uh, there's not a prophetic book that just leaves us under the cloud of judgment. There's always a, if you will, a silver lining where God is making promises, where God is saying, what I intended to do in the very beginning, I still intend to do. I'm going to take you through discipline, but I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to bring my people back to my place under my rule. So, and I think that sometimes when you read these prophetic books, knowing the history of what's going on in the original context, it helps us to see how, 
how God comes to his people in the thickest moments of darkness and despair and brings hope. You know, for example, remember in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, the, the people would have felt that they were under a cloud. Things were going so well under Uzziah, and suddenly he's got leprosy, he makes a misjudgment, he's presumptuous, he gets leprosy, he dies, and now what's going to happen to the nation? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You get this dark moment for Israel, shining self-revelation of God coming and speaking through the prophet and calling Isaiah to himself and saying, who will go for us? I will go. And Isaiah is sent to prophesy to the people. Well, this is a much darker moment that we come to in Ezekiel chapter 1. You might remember last week when we talked about how many of the people, when they were deported and sent out of Jerusalem, they were sent into Babylon, and many of them settled by the river Kibar. And that's probably where Psalm 137 took its inspiration when it, when it, it says, By the waters of Babylon, by the river Kibar, probably, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And in this settlement, this place where there were many uh, Many Jews all living outside the homeland by the river Kabar into that seemingly God-forsaken settlement by the river comes this revelation of God's glory. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal. So guess who was there when they were weeping by the river? Ezekiel himself was in that settlement. He says... And I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And these visions, as you read through the book of Ezekiel, will have a lot of judgment in them. But that's certainly not the, the dominant motif that comes shining through once you've read the entire uh, covenant document. And I think James Hamilton uh, kind of clarifies some of that in this quote. Ezekiel was active at the time of and during the exile, he might have known Jeremiah, and he names Daniel, whose book is grouped with the Old Testament writings. Ezekiel prophesies a new day when the people will have new hearts, and when Yahweh will reside in a new temple with the nation led by a new David. So there is hope in the book of Ezekiel in the midst of the fact that when you go into the context, Ezekiel begins by the river Kabar where there is nothing but weeping and mourning, and we hung our lyres on the willow trees. That's what was happening in Ezekiel chapter 1, and then, in, and then God comes in self-revealing glory and talks about a new David and a new temple and a new people and a new day for God's people. Many of us, I think, are familiar with the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, but I think that sometimes we can do this with that text and with many other texts as well where we read them individualistically. We, we read that text and immediately come into my personal life. Rather than reading the text and going into history, finding out what was happening in the original context, what was going on in the original audience's heart and mind, and then seeing principles of contact between where they are and where we are. And I think we can do that with the Ezekiel Valley of the Dry Bones. It's saying so much more than for us to come away with the application that, you know, you may be having kind of boring, dry times of prayer. But because of what you've read about the Valley of the Dry Bones, your prayer times can suddenly become really, really powerful 
Um, and it's certainly true that the Lord lifts our countenance and that we might go through dry seasons that end up giving way to rich seasons of communion with God. That's absolutely true, but it's not the main point of Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is not a skeleton in the valley. It's not me, my own one set of dry bones. It's a valley full of bones. It's a corporate assembly. It's God's entire gathered people, the entire Old Testament community. And, and God comes and reveals himself. And the reality is that what that valley of dry bones is saying to the people is God's people are out of God's place, out from under God's rule, out from under the land of covenant blessing, the prosperity that they had. Remember when everybody had his own vine tree, his fig tree, the wraparound porch? That was not the setting that they were in in Ezekiel. That was a long time that seemed a distant memory for Israel and God comes and gives them this this gives Ezekiel this vision of the valley of dry bones. In, in other words, it seems to the natural eye of his Old Testament people that God has completely forsaken them. It, it seems that the entire saving purpose of God, saving project of God that began in Genesis 12 has flatlined. It's over for Israel. We have been cast off as God's people. And it's into that context in Ezekiel 37 that he gives the interpretation of the valley of the dry bones. And note Ezekiel's divinely inspired interpretation of what the bones represented. Chapter 37, verse 11. These bones are the whole house of Israel. It's not primarily, right? We don't want to just jump into these bones are your bad prayer life. These bones are in the original context, the house of Israel. And what is it about the house of Israel? Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. So this valley of dry bones represents the evaporated uh, faith of God's people. They, they were thinking all hope is lost. God's promises have fallen because we have rebelled against him and there is, no, there is no hope for salvation. There is only despair. And this is how Israel felt at the end of 2 Kings. Right? So let's get back into the historical record. Because the, the prophecies are commenting on history. But it's a little harder to track history in the prophetic books. Because they're commenting all over the place. They're jumping from geography to the different places. But when we go back into the development and unfolding of the historical story, we end up in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings, everything starts to topple, the kingdom is divided, and we come to the end of 2 Kings, and this is how Israel felt. She's gone away into exile, she's been conquered, even the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered, and at the close of 2 Kings, Babylon is in control of both the northern kingdom of Israel, because Babylon was a fish big enough to eat Assyria, so Assyria has is no longer king of the hill. Babylon ate Assyria and then ate the southern kingdom as well. Babylon is the world power. The city of Jerusalem is in ruins at the end of 2 Kings and the people are exiles in Babylon. And it is here at this moment in history that we come to 1 Chronicles. It is into this moment of absolute despair that a storyteller comes on the scene. The storyteller is anonymous. We just call it the chronicler who writes first and second chronicles, and this chronicler begins to tell a story. And it's almost not the way that you would tell a story. 
or I would tell a story, is when you begin a story, you want it to begin in a way that is palpable, interesting, right? You're not going to tell a story by beginning with eight chapters of names. It's a genealogy. Some people have called this section of Scripture scriptural somonex. So the first eight chapters of this storyteller begins by him not giving any introduction, any setting at all. But there is a story in the names. You know, when some guys from Sovereign Grace came and they were um, guys who worked there, just coming and going to different churches and trying to help us see numbers, how to save and how to invest and how to think about mission in the church and what's going on in broader fields and foreign missions and all of that. And so they came in just to help us and we could ask questions, they could ask questions. And one of the things that they said is these guys live in numbers, they're accountants, this is, this is their proficiency. And they, they said what we always love to do is when we go to the church and we look at their budget and we see there's a story in the numbers. Well, in this case, there's a story in the names. We might not see that, but, but the chronicler comes and he is preaching for eight chapters. He is preaching a sermon on the faithfulness of God. He is saying for eight chapters, Israel, guess what? I know you're in exile, but the line continues. The line has continued from the very beginning. God has never forsaken his promises. And how does he say it? He doesn't start by saying it that way. Actually, how he begins is simply by saying, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, if you were with God's people in exile, you know there's a story in these names. If you've been attending this class, I hope, you know that there's a story in these names because when you read through those first eight chapters, you come across some pretty significant names, right? Some of them are right here. Adam, Noah, Shem, that ties over to the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has a son named Levi. Levi's pretty significant. Levi is the, the head of the priests in the Old Testament. Judah is another one. He's the head of the kings. Under Judah is David. These names have sermons in them. This is, this is the chronicler preaching an eight-chapter sermon on the faithfulness of God. They would have thought Noah's name, yes, yes, the floods destroyed the whole world, but God preserved his promise to Adam and Eve that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And how did he do it? The whole world was destroyed except for Noah and his family. God kept his promise. There's always a remnant. God has never forsaken. God has never lied to his people. The people are stained with sin at the base of Mount Sinai. And there you read 1 Chronicles chapter 6. And what do you see? You see the Levitical priesthood standing in their holy garments, ready to make sacrifices of atonement on behalf of the people. This is saying something about God's faithfulness. The sermon thesis is... God has always been faithful. He's not afraid to discipline his people, but he never leaves. That's the story that we find in the first eight chapters of Chronicles. And this is a sermon they needed to hear. When you think about the primary ways in which Israel in the Old Testament would have seen the favorable presence of God, they look for three things. 
when they're looking to see, is God favorable? Is God near to his people? Is he inclined to bless us? They look for that in three measurable ways. Number one, the temple with the ark. There is a one-to-one correspondence between Israel's location of the temple, is the ark in good hands, and their assumption about their standing with God, right? Remember when, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, when Israel goes to battle against the Philistines, the Philistines win and they capture the ark. Remember that? And Eli's sons die and Eli dies and his daughter-in-law hears this news and then she hears the really gripping news, not that her husband is dead, but that the ark is gone. And that's when she names <clears throat> her son Ichabod, Ichavod, the glory has departed. So in Israel's thinking in the Old Testament, if the ark is gone, God is gone. That's the way they thought. And guess what? The temple is in ruins. Number two, another mark of the favorable presence of God is the line of David on the throne. If there's a Davidic heir on the throne, we're still in business. Well, the booth of David had fallen. David's throne was a perch for jackals. Well, at least we're still in the land. I mean, things might not be right, but at least we're in Canaan land. We've got Canaan land under our feet. This is the land that was originally bought, a little piece, cave of Machpelah was bought by Abraham years and years ago, and we're, we're at least still in the promised land. No, you're not. Not today. You're by the river Kabar. You've been sent out of the land, and Jerusalem is desolation. Jerusalem looks like New Orleans three weeks after Katrina came through. There's nothing there. And you can almost hear the people saying, how can this be? Matter of fact, that's what the book of Lamentations is all about. In, in the Hebrew, it's not called Lamentations. That's an English word. In the Hebrew, the book is simply called one word, ekah, which means how. It's the first word of the book of Lamentations. They called it the book of how. In the first verse is, Eka, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. In other words, this entire book of Lamentations is completely taken up with the, the total disillusionment of God's people. How could God's place and God's people be so apparently God-forsaken? And this brings us really into the experience of what they might have been feeling like and thinking in Ezekiel chapter 1 when God comes to Ezekiel by the river Kabar. You ever see someone in a context and it throws you off? You know, it, it's the right person, but it's the wrong setting. You, you just can't quite make it fit. You know, maybe, maybe somebody you haven't seen since high school and you come to Alpha and they're at a table just over there. And it's like, well, no, I know you. And it's not that I thought you were dead. I just didn't expect to see you here, right? I, I just don't have a category for seeing you in this room. And maybe they seem to be talking with a friend that you know from the church. And you had no idea that person could have known your old buddies from high school. It just doesn't fit right. Well, in a similar way, God comes to Ezekiel. Here, Ezekiel is moaning and weeping at the river Kabar. And God shows up, but he's not in the temple. That's the context in which we expect to find God. He's not in Jerusalem. No, that, that would totally fit. God belongs in Jerusalem. He's not in the palace 
of David where he has built a house for David. God is in Babylon. It's, it's not that we thought he was dead. We just never thought we'd see him in Babylon. God, you don't come to Babylon. You live in Zion. You live in Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God. That's where you make your dwelling. That's where your presence dwells. Lord, what are you doing in Babylon? And Isaiah had prophesied that this is exactly what would happen in Isaiah chapter 43. He said, you're going to go into exile. You're going to go into captivity. He's speaking of the coming Babylonian exile. This is 150 years before the Babylonian exile. And he says, but when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the flames, you will not be scorched. And the flames that's being spoken of in Isaiah 43, at the end of chapter 42, are the flames of God's own discipline. God is sending Israel into a 70-year timeout. But unlike most parents who put their kids in timeout, he's going with them. When you pass through the fires of my own discipline, I'm coming too. God comes to Babylon. Do you see a, a glimpse of the incarnation in this surprise visit at the river Kabar in Babylon? Because God doesn't come. We don't have a category for God coming to a sin-wracked world that is completely enthralled with rebelling against him. You know, God dwells in glory. He is worshipped by angels. What is he doing in this God-forsaken place? What is God doing in Bethlehem? Emmanuel, God with us. He came to our exile to save us from our exile. We'll come back to Ezekiel before we're done. That brings us, the end of Ezekiel, into the book of Daniel. Babylon is still in power. Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler over Babylon, and he raises up in the providence of God through dream interpretation. He raises Daniel up to a position of great prominence. Daniel enjoys prominence in much the same way that Joseph enjoyed it in Genesis chapter 50 when we leave off in the Genesis account. And Daniel rises to power. The next ruler that comes on the scene in Babylon is Belshazzar. But by the time he comes on, the time is up for Babylon. The writing is on the wall, literally. This is the moment where we get that phrase because Belshazzar is having this massive feast to celebrate the opulence and security of his kingdom and God writes on the wall, basically, time is up. And he doesn't mean time is up 10 years from now. He means before the night is over, <laughs> Babylon will fall. And in comes Persia into the midst of that very party. Belshazzar is going to be dead before the party's over. Persian Empire takes the authority and, and grabs, becomes the king of the hill on the world scene. And, and Daniel, much like he enjoyed prominence in the Babylonian Empire, he will also enjoy prominence in the reigns of Cyrus and Darius, Persian kings. So God has left Daniel there as an influential figure in the Persian Empire as well. And there are some familiar names that come on the scene in the Persian Empire. Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Now, the name 
and the emergence of the name Cyrus on the scene of history should get Israel excited because Cyrus has been mentioned before. Matter of fact, he was mentioned 150 years ago by Isaiah. This is before the Persian Empire ever rose, before the Babylonian Empire ever rose. Isaiah's prophesying in the 740s, 730s, 720s, 710s. He's prophesying back then. That's when Assyria is the dominant power. Then it will be Babylon. Then it will be Assyria and a man named Cyrus. And Isaiah prophesied about that man whom he would never see. And Isaiah prophesied these words. Really, this just shows the exhaustive foreknowledge of God. That this man would come on the scene, that he would rise to power, that he would be named a certain thing by his parents. Look at this, this uh, prophecy. Isaiah 44, 26. It says, The Lord God who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. <laughs> a pagan king. God's going to use a pagan king to shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem. This is what Cyrus is going to say of his own free will, but in, in the midst of the sovereign plan of God. He will say of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And some 150 years later, Cyrus not only rises to power in the Persian Empire, but he says almost exactly that. Look at it. This is where the chronicler who's telling this story chooses to end his story with the fulfillment of that promise. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Cyrus made this decree in 539 B.C., a couple hundred, almost a couple hundred years after Isaiah had prophesied, which just goes to show us God's hands are not tied. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart, even the pagan king's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Not only can he turn it wherever he will, he has turned it wherever he willed. He did that in Israel's history. Even pagan kings are subject to the sovereign will of God, such that if God tells Cyrus... I want my people back in Jerusalem. What is Cyrus going to do? That's exactly what Cyrus is going to do. He's going to, uh, I like the way Isaiah puts it, he shall fulfill all my purpose. That's what Cyrus is going to do. He's going to fulfill the sovereign purpose of God. So the waves of returned exiles heads back to Jerusalem under Cyrus's decree. And guess who's leading the way? You go and you read Ezra chapter 2, verse 2, and the person at the front of that procession is named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel shows up in another interesting place, namely the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. You find out that the one who's leading the procession back to the homeland, the one who's going to be in charge of rebuilding the temple, is, surprise, surprise, a son of David. 
could it be more fitting than that the people of God would be led back home by a son of David? It's what you would expect in this, in this plan of a sovereign God who knows how to tell a story, who knows how to write history in a way that is beautiful and compelling and amazing. Baker Atlas of Christian History says, the return to Palestine happens in stages. The first under Zerubbabel was permitted by the decree of the Persian Emperor Cyrus the Great, who reigned from 559 to 529 BC, shortly after the Persians took Babylon in 539 BC. And under Zerubbabel, plans begin to come together for the rebuilding of the temple, which was then completed in 515 BC. Now, the return of the exiles to Jerusalem was anticlimactic for a few reasons. Here are some of the realities on the ground. Only about 50,000 Jews returned, a very small fraction of those who were deported. Only a very small fraction uh, returned in the ensuing years. Number two, uh, the rebuilding of the temple and of the city walls was met with much opposition and difficulty. Number three, once completed the temple, the latter was clearly less glorious than the former. And if you read Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 10 through 13, those are some of the most poignant words about the, the finished second temple. Because you have, you have the people celebrating the, the building of the temple again, and it's built in the same place. And the youth, the younger ones who are there are just hooping and hollering. The temple is rebuilt. We're in God's land. And that's God's place. That's where God dwells. We're back in business. And the older saints are weeping because they remember the former temple. They remember what it was like some 70 years ago. The glory of Solomon's temple. And this was practically a corrugated metal building by comparison. This didn't look anything like the beauty of Solomon's temple. Number four, they were in the land, to be sure, but it wasn't their land anymore. That wasn't your fig tree. That fig tree belongs to the government of Persia. That's not your wraparound porch. It belongs to the government of Persia. It belongs to the empire. The empire does with it what we will. Glad you're here. Glad you're in the homeland. This is my property. Welcome to my land, says the emperor. So the Persian Empire would allow some of the Jews to have positions of prominence. But the city of David was under the rule of Persian kings like Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes. Xerxes' other name is Ahasuerus, which may be familiar from the book of Esther, which brings us to, to the book of Esther. The book of Esther describes a key event in the exilic period. <clears throat> since Genesis 3, we've seen some of this along the way, since Genesis 3 there have been these, these upheavals, these uprisings. <clears throat> the seed of the serpent, remember the contest, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Uh, the seed of the serpent has been seeking to destroy the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah. Well in Esther's time, many of the people are still living in exile in Persia. Esther lives in Susa, which is the capital city of Persia, and, and Haman puts together this plot. A guy named Haman puts together a plot, and it seems to succeed because a dreadful decree comes from the head and the court of the Persian Empire that spells disaster for, uh, for God's people. And you can read that in Esther 3, 12 through 15. 
And Esther is raised up in the providence of God for such a time as this. That phrase comes from Esther. She's raised up in the providence of God for such a time as this. She becomes the queen of Xerxes. She is a part of the court, a part of the harem. And this comes back to the concept of God saving his people using one of their own. God is going to preserve his people and rescue his people through one of their own. And, and she becomes this queen, and Haman gets angry because he asks Mordecai to bow before him. And Haman believes he's worthy of praise, and Mordecai denies it and says, I won't bow before you. And this, this harks to something that's going to happen in the future where Satan believes he's worthy of worship, and he takes Jesus. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and Satan says, bow before me. And what does Jesus say? It's not going to happen. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he sounded much like Mordecai, his forebear. And, and, and Haman rises up with tremendous anger. And he's infuri infuriated and he has influence in the Persian kingdom. And he sees to it that an edict is written that spells the death of all of God's people throughout the Persian empire, not just in Susa. So this is a death sentence written on the entire covenant body of God's people, and that death sentence begins to go out. Haman is at this point stepping into a long-established Old Testament pattern. He is the seed of the serpent, much like Cain, Pharaoh, Goliath, Jezebel, Athaliah. These are stories of people who sought to slay the faithful ones to slay the remnant, to slay God's people, even the house of David. And he's seeking, Haman is seeking to kill God's faithful one. And he's, it, it's interesting, the, the irony here. He's thinking well of his craftiness because he erects this gallows so that Mordecai can be hung on the gallows. And when you come to the end of the book of Esther, there's this surprising reversal that almost sounds like 1 Samuel's reversals, that theme of reversals. Because what you find when you read these two texts is Haman's rule is ended by his own scheme. <laughs> Mordecai, who should still be swinging from the gallows, is exalted to the right hand of the king of the earth. And Haman is swinging from the gallows. <laughs> you know, Satan incites Judas to betray Jesus and hand him over to be crucified erecting a cross on which finally the anointed, the Messiah, will be killed. He thinks he's being very clever, much like Haman thought he was being very clever, erecting the gallows upon which he would hang himself. It's exactly what the cross did. You read Colossians, let me read to you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and you find out what the cross actually did. <laughs> And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel the record of debt? It says it in the next phrase. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, nailing your debts to Christ's cross. And what else did he do from the cross? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Do you see the irony here? Jesus is at open shame. 
Jesus is naked on the cross. Jesus is unarmed. Jesus looks like he has no authority. If you had any authority, call for the angels. If you had any authority, save yourself. Jesus looks disarmed, naked, and shamed. But what he actually is doing, if you really see through the, the story of God, is he is actually in that moment disarming Satan, shaming Satan, disrobing Satan before the world, triumphing over Satan. And this is foreshadowed in the story of Haman and Mordecai. This reversal in Esther's narrative spells the salvation of God's people. And that brings us to Ezra and Nehemiah. The book of Esther actually describes, though it's found canonically in the canon after Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the book of Esther actually describes the period just before Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther was married to Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. When we come to Ezra chapter 7, Ezra, uh, sorry, Esther and Xerxes are behind us. The temple has been rebuilt by some exiles who had returned. Ezra is in Babylonia under King Artaxerxes, who came after Xerxes. All right, so Artaxerxes, if you looked at family photos, you would see little Artaxerxes, and you would see Xerxes, Ahasuerus, and you would see a lot of wives, and one of them would be very pretty, and her name would be Esther. So Esther would be in the same family photos with Artaxerxes, who ends up speaking with a man named Ezra and later speaking with a man named Nehemiah. And, and in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra is sent back to Jerusalem to write, to teach the law of God to God's people back in Jerusalem. Now, you may be wondering, why, why would Cyrus and now Artaxerxes send people back to rebuild the temple? Why would Artaxerxes say, you know what? I want God's people to be shepherded and taught the law. So, Ezra, why don't you go ahead back and teach them the Bible. Why in the world would, would they want this to happen? You might, you might say, were they in a trance? Were they puppets on a string? Was Cyrus writing this, not even knowing what he was doing? Uh, I don't think that that's what's happening. It seems that he was doing this of his own free will. Another option would be, were they saved? And I think if you read the rest of the narratives, you find out that probably isn't the case. Uh, because there were evil actions and pagan actions associated with their rules as well. And there's another possibility, and that is the, the concurrence of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and human freedom. And both of them are in lockstep. Both of them are happening. God is superintending as the rulers of Persia are acting. And this is where we come to Persia, the kinder, gentler, religiously tolerant global empire. God works through means. And the Persian policy, this is just true from secular history, the Persian policy of, of invading a new place and capturing more territory was different than Assyria's and different than Babylon's. Babylon would come in, destroy the place, and take everybody away so that you can't reconvene. But what ended up happening, if you track, remember what we said last week, was Babylon continued to have these uprisings. The people were so upset. They were mad as hornets. And so any chance they had to revolt against the Babylonian Empire, they took that. And they ended up failing. But still, they were just mad as hornets at the Babylonian Empire that they would do this to us. Well, the Persian kings thought a little differently. They were more modern 
in one sense. They thought, I think that we might lead a more secure kingdom if we come in and then we let the people who, are, who have been dispersed by the Bab- Babylonians, let them go back to their homelands. Let them resume their own worship. Tell them, do that. Worship your God. We have no problem with you worshiping your God. Just don't revolt against the empire. We can have a live and let live policy. And that's what the Persian empire was. And so God's sovereign decree is brought about without him necessarily being saved, without him necessarily intending to bring glory and honor to God. As far as the Persian king is concerned, he just wants a stable empire. And so he brings about his stable empire by saying, Go back to Jerusalem. Build your temples. That's fine. Just don't revolt. That's great. Matter of fact, I'll fund some of it. I'll help you build this temple. So that's how God was working sovereignly. And the same king, Artaxerxes, has a believing cupbearer named Nehemiah. And he lets Nehemiah go back home to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. You can read that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Now, this is, this is all very good. You know, all these people going back home and building the temple again and building the walls that protect Jerusalem again. But this doesn't feel like the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the return home, does it? I mean, this does not feel ideal. We have a temple, yes, but it's less glorious than the first. It'll work. We're back home, but this all belongs to the Persian Empire, and the ruler on the throne hasn't even heard of King David. So we're home, but are we home? We've arrived, but have we really arrived? Are they, we, really home yet? The reality is this, this is, in Israel's history, this is not the final fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. As a matter of fact, we haven't seen the final fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning the end of the exile. There's the same song sung at the end of both Testaments. There's a sense in which you come to the end of the Old Testament and you come to the end of the New Testament and the song that's playing in the background is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns still in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. And the word even at the end of Revelation is, Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It's the same song in both Testaments, even in our situation of redemptive history. We have not arrived. We are not home yet. We are at the river Kabar. We are exiles. This is not home. He is preparing for us a city with foundations, an everlasting kingdom. Emmanuel has come. That's that's for certain. Emmanuel has come. We sing these songs for good reason. He has come. He accomplished his prophetic ministry. He has proclaimed the way of salvation through himself. He has accomplished his priestly ministry, providing atonement for the sins of his people. But he has not come yet to establish his earthly kingdom. And that's where the Jews missed it in the first century. They confused the first coming of Emmanuel with the second coming of Emmanuel. The first coming was not to establish a physical earthly kingdom. The first coming was to purchase the kingdom, was to provide salvation for the people, for the citizens of the kingdom. The second coming 
is to establish the kingdom, is to put the palace on the ground. Where we find in God's word the description that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. He came the first time to deal with sin. He comes the second time to reign on the earth, to consummate his triumph over evil, to bring us to the city he has prepared for us. We live as exiles. We, we live in a world, this is how the Bible describes it, that is still under the influence and power of the prince of the power of the air that is now working among the sons of disobedience. The seed of the serpent still afflicts God's people, doesn't he? We all experience this. This is part of living in exile. Thorns and thistles, wars and labor, child pain and labor, persecution, sin, demons, sickness, death. Those are still all household names in our era of salvation history, the era in which we find ourselves now. But it will not always be so. Ezekiel's ancient prophecy from the Valley of Dry Bones will find ultimate fulfillment on the day of Christ's return. Look at these words from Ezekiel 37. This could not have described the return in 538 B.C. That was not glorious enough. Listen to this. This is future for us. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 35, which we're going to read in just a moment, was partially fulfilled in the homegoing of the remnant in 538 but it's going to be fulfilled in fullness when Jesus Christ returns it's partially fulfilled wonderfully but partially in the fact that the kingdom of God has come when we put our faith in Jesus Christ we live under his benevolent rule his king kingly reign we have peace with God Right? That is a glorious thing, but that's not the full realization of the kingdom of God in Scripture. The questions that come to mind are, who's going to be there in the new Jerusalem? Will you follow the promise from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? And you find out it's not just going to be physical descendants of Abraham. You find out that through the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it's no surprise then when we land in the book of Revelation and we find out that there are people singing next to Jews. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Every Gentile in this room who's put your faith and trust in Jesus will stand alongside God's Old Testament people and proclaim salvation through our one Savior who will be one body. Jews and Gentiles will be there. What about the land? 
The new Jerusalem will be far more glorious than it ever was in the Old Testament, and it will be far bigger. I think when we see the multitudes in heaven, the millions and millions of believers from ages past, we're going to know we need something bigger than Dan to be Airsheba. We're going to need a lot bigger plot of land. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. It's going to be a massive plot of land. And it's going to be the shape of a cube. And there are two cubes in the whole Bible. One cube is the holy place of God. The holiest place in Old Testament history. And only one person was allowed to go in. But the new Jerusalem is the shape of a cube which signifies to God's people everyone dwells in the holy of holies forever. There are no outer courts in heaven. We live in the inner sanctum of God. We see the throne in the center of the place. There is no veil, no lions in the streets, no persecution, no soldiers in body bags, no hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, earthquakes, no orphans, no cancer-ridden believers, no loneliness, no guilt, no shame, no sin. You know, these are the kinds of things that we want here and now, right? And, and because God is gracious, he gives us foretastes of the kingdom that is to come. So he heals us. He sets us free from bondages and addictions. And this is God's glory to give us a taste of the mercy that we will experience in full measure there. I think if we had them in full measure here, who would want the new Jerusalem? But we want the new Jerusalem because we only get tastes here. So these are household names here. But God's word will prove true on the day of his return. And his return from heaven spells the end of lowly exile. Turn to Isaiah chapter 35. This prophecy will be our enjoyment forever. And this may well be one of my favorite chapters in the entire Old Testament. In light of the Old Testament story, once you know the Old Testament story and you read Isaiah 35, it is just wondrous news. And I'll do my best to read it. This is the day that is coming for all of God's people. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What ultimately, what coming is this referencing? It's the second coming as a result of the first coming. The first coming triggers and enables the second coming to actually accomplish what happens in verse he comes and saves us in verse 4 and then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and he's talking about not, not simply physical sight and physical hearing 
But Israel is spoken of just a few chapters after this as being blind in their idolatry and deaf to the voice of God. Not so in the New Jerusalem. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy, not the temporary joy that was around the second temple. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, we thank you for your faithfulness that you have proclaimed to us in every page of the Old Testament and that you have shown your promises to be true because all of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. They are guaranteed because of what Christ did in his first coming. And we look for your second coming, O oh Lord. We say, as the exiles did in Old Testament history, and yet using the words of Revelation 22, we say, Maranatha, even so, Lord, come.